Hi, I'm Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Michael Plutt. Based in Nuremberg, Michael is currently working as a fellow for the technology and software development consulting firm InnoQ. Michael is an award-winning conference speaker, and he has over 15 years of consulting experience in areas like domain-driven design, and you can follow him on Twitter at BitBoss. Michael is the author of the Lean Pub book, Hands-On Domain-Driven Design by Example, Domain-Driven Design Practically Explained with a Massive Case Study. In the book, Michael explains domain-driven design, exploring a concept in each chapter from a theoretical level, coupled with a practical example and exercises derived from a sophisticated case and comprehensive case study. In this interview, we're going to talk about Michael's background and career, his professional interests, his book, uh, Domain-Driven Design, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published author. So thank you, Michael, for taking some time out from your evening to be on this episode of the Front Matter podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me, and thanks for the invitation. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you became interested in in technology. Ah, okay, that's a good question. Uh, I actually grew up in a yeah, mid-sized town called Regensburg, uh, which is in Bavaria in Germany. And I basically spent all of my childhood there, went to school there, and I even studied um, information technology with, but with a business focus in Regensburg. Um, and after that, uh, I wanted to leave Regensburg, so I, I went to London uh, as a trainee for a bank and worked there a little bit and then went back to Frankfurt um, and worked there for a bank, but I, I uh, sooner or later realized that I'm more uh, interested in doing consulting. So I joined a consulting company and uh, yeah, worked as a consultant uh, in the IT area uh, on, on quite a few projects. And um, well, my, my interest in technology pretty much originated back as a kid. I was always fascinated with computers. A friend of my father, he worked at the university and uh, when we when we visited him at his office, I always, as a kid, wanted to see the big computers. And back in the days, uh, like the data centers, um, basically a huge room was filled with one computer, which probably had uh, 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 a very small amount of the computing size compared to an iPhone nowadays. And uh, I was always totally fascinated by those things. And uh, well, sometime. Then after that, my parents got me a Commodore C64, and um, I was totally blown away by it. So uh, I first started off with computer games, and well, what you do as a young kid uh, growing up, you're fascinated with games and stuff. And but sooner or later, I I got some magazines and I saw some listings with programs. So I. I started programming a little bit as a kid, and I think the first thing was a, a little game that I wrote in BASIC, which where you had to answer some questions, just like a, a totally simple quiz. And yeah, and that's how the ball got rolling. So um, when I was about to study uh, after school, I had well two things I, I, I considered. One option was to become a, a brewing master for beer in Bavaria. And uh, the other one was um, information technology. So I checked out both things and I, I decided for to go for IT because I wasn't so much into chemistry and, and stuff like that. So yeah, 
uh, here I am now as an IT guy. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've got it. I've pretty got it. typical story, I would say. Yeah, no, thank you, thank you very much people. for that story. That's that's great. Um, uh, so many so many people that I interview, I mean, because so many Lean Pub authors are, are technical people, uh, have have a yeah. story about their first encounter with a computer, uh, and it's just so wonderful. And I've interviewed people, you know, from across the decades, and it's just always so wonderful to hear about that first experience, and particularly the experience of which is so so dated now, but of getting a magazine. Uh, and a paper magazine yeah. and using that as your entry into into programming. Um, but before I ask you some questions about that, um, so one of the things I noted from your profiles online is that you're a fan of heavy metal music. Um, Absolutely. And, and so this is a bit of a digression, but I, as I understand it, you founded a music magazine called All Schools. Yeah. Can you talk yeah, a little right. bit about, uh, about how that came about? And... Yeah. Um, the fun thing is uh, I started it... Uh, over 20 years ago, it's I think it's now 22 years ago, and um, I started it with a, a friend of mine called Jochen Mader, and uh, Jochen is now also uh, he he's always been an IT guy, and we were members of the the German hardcore punk scene back in the days, and um, it was a quite an interesting time because many, yeah, especially in that area in Germany, many bands started to pop up there was a lot about um veganism a lot of political stuff and every it was a, a very do-it-yourself driven scene yeah everyone was doing a little bit yeah some folks were starting bands others started record labels and uh, others started uh merchandising companies or, or were printing t-shirts or flyers or something. I was on a total underground DIY level. And um, we we thought, hey, what can we do? Uh, nobody wants us in a band because we totally suck as musicians. And uh, so we were like, hey, we're both technical guys. Let's start an online fanzine. Back in the days, there were a lot of print fanzines. And we were like, hey, I mean, let's start something online. And so we kicked that off. The funny thing is Jochen is now also a, a regular conference speaker. He works for a company called Instana, who are very active in the cloud space uh, with their monitoring and analytics stuff. And we're still good friends. He left the magazine uh, quite a few years ago, but I'm still active as a programmer for it and like the old guy in the background. And there's now quite a few folks in their 20s who write articles and I'm happy to provide a platform for them to get started in that area. Yeah, that's it's yeah, such a, that's, it's such that's a great, how it went. It's such a great story. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's the kind of thing we take it for granted now. But but 22 years ago, you know, having having a site like that was was an innovation and an achievement. Uh, yeah. and, and very, yeah, very, I think very early. Yeah, we're, I think we're probably, if you look at the German area now, we, I think we must, we should be one of the oldest ones that are still active right now. Yeah. One of the things I really enjoy about doing this podcast is interviewing authors from all over the world. And so I get to ask them about some of the things about where they're from. Uh, you're the first author from Nuremberg that I've interviewed. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about what's the, what's the tech and startup scene like, like there? Mm. Nuremberg, there's many bigger corporations and um, there's many big companies out there like um, large enterprises and, and stuff like that and um, a, a, a quite a, a big uh, public sector kind of thing. Um, 
an agency in Nuremberg, which is doing a lot in IT and some mid-sized company. Um, yes, there are a couple of startups, startups, but I wouldn't consider Nuremberg to be a big uh, startup city or something like that. It's more, I would say, a, a very classical um, um, IT scene there. Yeah? Um, we're from InnoQ, we're running the software architecture Nuremberg meetup, which is doing pretty well. But um, it's a, a typical, yeah, classical software architecture kind of thing. Of course, we do modern stuff like microservices and the current trends. But our audience is, is uh, yeah, it's uh, mostly folks from those uh, corporations and enterprises. Um, yeah. Yeah, and work at work. I'm curious. I, I used to be an investment banker, um, and uh, I, I was. And we'll talk a little bit about this. I was based in London um, and did some work oh, okay. deals in Germany. So I spent some time a little bit northwest mm -hmm. of you in Frankfurt. Uh, oh. And um, uh, one of the one of the curious features of working with people in big companies in Germany was uh, mm -hmm. the constraints um, compared to yeah. compared to other places. Is that is that true? I mean, you're a consultant, uh, but you work for a big company. Yeah. I mean, are you are you sort of forced to leave the office at five thirty, or can you can you stay longer? Or I mean, I guess I'm, I'm sort of asking you like, what's typical uh, for someone working in a classical IT company in Germany? Are, are they sort of regimented like that? Hmm. I think it depends. Um, I, I am in a very lucky position that I uh, my employer is a very uh, yeah freedom loving company, so I can basically do whatever I want as long as it's in reason. And um, but when I consult uh, companies like that, yes, of course you see some constraints uh, uh, depending hardware that they are allowed to use, and uh, of course there is. Uh, uh, something like a, a workers' council that takes a look if folks work more than 10 hours a day or something like that. But I would say most of the stuff is, is within good reason. Yeah, I mean, yes, of course, there are companies that are more regulated like others. Um, yes, there are some companies that have a very exciting environment. I think it always depends also, especially in the big corporations, in which kind of environment you work. Um, for instance, I, I worked, uh, I consulted an incubator, an insurance company a couple of years ago, and they had a totally awesome environment within this large enterprise. And um, that was totally great. And uh, of course, other areas are not so great, but that's the life in a corporate enterprise. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I saw it in London as well. And uh, I've worked in London, uh, as I said earlier. Um, and I'm, I'm mostly, uh, I have a very strong banking background as well. Uh, so um, I, I think that the difference is not that huge. Yes, there are nuances where the difference is, but... Uh, I, I wouldn't say that's a, a, a huge difference. And so you uh, you moved to London. Um, uh, what what uh, what prompted that? Was it was it an easy decision, or did did someone pull you there? Was it a place you wanted to go? Um, well, basically, um, it was uh, part of the trainee program that I did at the uh, at a bank, at a German bank, and part of it was that the first placement was in London and I heard that and I thought, Hey, that's great. 
Um, I have never been to London before, but I only heard good things. And I was like, hey, you were in Regensburg for 25 years. Let's check this out. I mean, you can't lose with such a decision. You can only win <laughs> checking out new places. And I, I loved London and I still love this city. If I can ask specifically, where did, where did you live when you were there? What neighborhood? Um, my first apartment uh, was a bank apartment in Westminster. And uh, after that, I moved to Islington. But actually, I, I actually preferred Islington. Uh, it was near Angel Station. Yeah, I actually lived um, uh, on City Road right near Angel Station for a couple of years. Ah, okay. When I was working yeah. in the city okay. myself. Yeah, it's a, sort of walking distance from, from the city was, was a key feature yeah. of living in that awesome neighborhood. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a really good neighborhood over there. And uh, since I, I love a lot of electro uh, clubs and underground clubs, I always checked out the electro works and stuff like that. I was in walking distance and I totally enjoyed that. Oh, yeah. I, remember, I think I remember that place. Uh, also sort of spent distance. It was distance a crazy from, place. Yeah, also spent yeah, distance it was a crazy place, but... as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's cool. Um, uh, and so I guess what's the view in that context? I, I'm always curious because, you know, I, you know, I got to go to London from Canada relatively mm -hmm. easily. Um, I got to yeah. study in the UK relatively easily. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I imagine that when you went to London, it was, you know, relatively easy, but that might not be the case going forward. What's, I mean, I don't want to ask you to generalize to like, what's the German view of Brexit, but given that you've had this experience of living in the UK and being able to move and work there easily, what, what, what's your view of, of what's, what's going on there right now? Um, I can't talk, touch a lot about uh, the English folks and their motivation, but my personal view is that this is utter nonsense. And uh, I think uh, uh, many, uh, I, I think the more that people collaborate, that they work together, that they see different views, uh, the more they grow from it. And I think separation has served no one. I, I, I don't know uh, one case in history where it served anyone. I think the most successful societies have always been uh, the ones that, yeah, were open to other ideas. And um, I don't think that this is a good idea. And um, I think especially people who live in the bigger cities like London, Manchester and so on, they see the benefits uh, from such a collaboration and uh, stuff. And, uh, well, they strongly voted against it. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want, I, I wish the British all the best. I, I really love that country and I, I love the folks living there. And I think they can hopefully sort that out in a reasonable way. But it's pretty crazy what's going on right now from my personal outside perspective, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Th thanks, sir. thanks for sharing those, but, those thoughts. But it's, yeah. but it's, it's, it's their choice. I mean, uh, they... They have the freedom to do that. It's part of democracy. Yeah, you, you need to accept decisions, even if you don't like them. But let's see. Let's hope uh, we can. Yeah, all all of us uh, on the European continent can sort that out in a way that, yeah, it's kind of acceptable. But I think it's it's sad. Yeah, it's totally sad. Let's see. Yeah, yeah. I, I share the I share the same feelings. I think. You know, particularly as someone who, you know, 
benefited from moving to someone else's country. Um, you know, yeah. I'm sympathetic to the view that, that, um, you know, people in that, so, you know, I, I moved to, I moved to London, I went to the university of Oxford, I became an investment banker mm -hmm. and not everybody gets to have that kind of like, like you move to move to London and be a banker kind of thing. And I can see, you know, there's, there was always, there's a sense of particularly in places where people are economically deprived and they see foreigners coming into the country and making money uh, and yeah. getting ahead and see themselves falling behind. And it's very, very easy to think, oh, if it only weren't for those people, I'd be better off myself. And, you know, whether, whether yeah. we agree with that view in a kind of socioeconomic theory uh it's very common sense uh to see yeah, I, I think it i think it also has to do between uh the big difference between rich and poor that we now have and that's also not a very good thing and i think uh, that needs to be addressed in one way or another but i'm not a big specialist in those things so i i often refrain on offering simplified solutions because reality is always complex and it should be dealt with folks who know what they are doing. Uh, well, uh, on that note, thank you for the opportunity for a good segue. Speaking of complexity and, and things that you, you know what you're doing, uh, you're, you're an expert in domain-driven design and you've written a book about it. Um, and I wanted to uh, ask you a little bit about that. What, um, what is domain-driven design? Mm -hmm. Well, um, domain-driven design is an approach to develop software that reflects the heart of a business domain. Yeah? Uh, it's a way that we write and we uh, structure our software that the, the business domain is the heart of, of this, yeah? so that it reflects this, this kind of the, the rules. Yeah? For instance, in the investment banking, when you do, let's say, uh, so some trading stuff or you have certain rules how you want to judge uh, real estates or something like that when you when you do a financing on them uh, and the the way that domain and, and I would say domain driven design has a very holistic approach to that so it's um, it's not only about uh, design patterns how you write code or it's actually not at all about technologies it's more about also uh, dynamics between various stakeholders so how do um, developers and architects talk to domain experts yeah um, how, how can we yeah uh, crunch the knowledge together with them how can we learn about them what about the language? There's a very uh, central thing, the ubiquitous language, which is a shared language that domain experts from the business speak and also the developers speak. And how do we get there? And there's a couple of techniques, ideas, and so on. And there, another author, uh, Alberto Brandolini, who published the event storming book uh, on LeanPub as well. He is a, a total specialist, for instance, in the domain driven design company, especially for that knowledge crunching. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've got a few questions about some of these these key concepts, including ubiquitous language yeah. and 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 things like context maps. Uh, but before before we move on, just to sort of drill right down. So every software, as Mark Andreessen said years and years ago, now is eating the world. And so the way the way software is made is actually the way our world mm -hmm. is made. And this this is actually one of the themes of our podcast. And we fortunately, you know, yeah. on LeanPub, we get thinkers, you know, like you and like Alberto Brandolini 
coming up who are, you know, who are saying like, you know, we need to really think deeply. I mean, I know it's part of your everyday world, but to, to the rest of us, it's mm -hmm. often seems a bit distant. You know, how is this software be, really being made? Can you just like let the computer guys take care of it is something that a lot of people have the attitude of. But actually the way software is built, the theories around it are driving the way our world works now. And so given, given that sort of framing, can you explain what a business domain is, maybe by giving us an example? Yeah. Yeah, let's say um, my case study, um, my, my book is based on a, on a big case study around uh, financing for retail mortgage loans. So if you buy an apartment or a house for your family, you need a loan from the bank. And one of the, the business domains is, for instance, uh, mortgage loan lending. How do you apply for a credit? How does the bank judge your application when they maybe they they get a quote from a credit agency that has information about your credit worthiness how do they make the decision to grant the credit what regulatory requirements do they have to meet and stuff like that and that is basically a business domain so it's basically a, a kind of a problem that we want to solve with it yeah? and uh, i i want to 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 put, grab one of your sentences there, let the IT folks do that. Yeah, let's let's give them the thing, and let's let's do it. I, I think that doesn't work anyway. It, it's uh, I think most products in today's world, as you said, software is eating the world, are digital, and I don't think that many business folks can resort to that attitude and think they can produce successful products in the future. With that kind of attitude, I think they have to think in terms of IT products, digital products. And in Germany, there's this 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 term of digitalisierung, like making everything digital. And I think I'm not a very big fan of that term, but um, the, the the general idea is that everyone needs to understand that most of the stuff that we produce nowadays is basically IT. Yeah, and, and uh, particularly one of the inspirations behind domain-driven design is the idea of sort of, I mean, you, you have these great graphics about it, but a kind of Venn diagram where you try and find find an efficient way of having an overlap between the domain, the business domain experts, let's yeah. say the person who's an expert yeah. in mortgage lending, and then the mm -hmm. IT team that actually has to build the product and and part of the inspiration behind domain driven design is the is the idea that these people should have some overlapping knowledge and even contact with each other which is something that to an outsider might sound totally reasonable but to insiders seems can sometimes seem alien and strange in a big enterprise because for example there might be i forget what the term is but there's um requirements engineering team or something like that yeah, uh, that that's that's in between these two groups, and like those people wouldn't have a job if they couldn't keep the two groups apart, or they might they might see see it that way. So things like this that seem you know described at a high level as very common sense can actually be kind of like an existential crisis within an organization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think um, the requirements engineering teams they their job is or their classic job is talk to the business folks and translate that stuff to IT slang. I always refer to the term IT slang. That's like the technical blabbering uh, from the IT folks. And um, I think um, 
Yeah, this leads to, to, to a couple of problems, if, especially if we have a very strong curtain, like an iron curtain between uh, those two uh, parts of an organization. Because um, sooner or later, the requirements engineering folks will derive their own business strategy going forward. And um, I think that they are very helpful. Yeah, they are necessary. Yeah, they do a good job and they are, add a lot of value. But I think there needs to be a direct communication between technical people and domain experts. And, and maybe the requirements. Yeah. And, and why is it why is it conventional to want to keep those the domain experts and the IT people apart? <laughs> There's no really good reason for doing that. Uh, I think it's. Uh, habit in a lot of organization that this has happening and it has grown to be convenient yeah, for many folks hey let the IT handle that oh the business people it's so hard to deal with them please write down the requirements and and yeah, attitudes like that and um, it, it has worked in a couple of organizations especially when they didn't need a high pace in terms of new product development, product updates. But nowadays, speed is everything. The ones that move faster are probably the, the ones that learn faster and that gain a bigger market share. And the, the, the question of language is one that, that comes up often. I've, I'm in, you know, when I was researching for this interview, um, and there's, I know there's this specific concept of ubiquitous language. I just wanted to, that we can talk about, I just wanted to bring up one of your great jokes in a talk that you gave, I think, late last year where you talk about how, you know, if you've got an image of a room and there's a, say, a window, a sort of domain expert in rooms might call it a window, but then a technical person might call it like a transparency pane, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the carpet. A transparent. What was it? A transparency creation device or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and, and then you yeah. know, uh, you can just imagine, you know, a, a couch would be a sort of resting device or something like that. Anyway, you know, that and that, that often uh, one of the things that just makes it so hard for people to talk to each other is that they don't have a shared language. And part of domain-driven design is establishing a shared ubiquitous language. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you, how you actually accomplish that. How do you get people to talk on the same yeah. terms? Mm -hmm. I think it has to do a lot with empathy, um, actually, um, uh, and uh, uh, empathy going both ways. So on the one hand, uh, that the IT folks go ahead and toss away all their like graphical UML whatnot tooling uh, that they usually use for modeling or analyzing things and that the business folks uh, go ahead and say, okay, let's talk to the IT. Let's get the ball rolling and let's talk. And I think it's a lot about this common ground so that everyone meets at eyes level. Huh? Of course, the IT folks are better in uh, abstracting things, structuring things, but um, yeah, it would be very short-sighted to ignore the knowledge from the business folks and the experience that they have. And uh, I wanted to ask you about um, how you go about establishing a ubiquitous language between the people with the business domain expertise and the IT side of things. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with empathy um, and empathy going both ways. So on the one hand, we have the domain experts, um, 
that need to have, um, well, that that need to to be willing to talk to IT people. On the other hand, we have to we have the IT folks that they ditch a lot of their technical slang and their technical tooling. Yeah, I've, I've witnessed a couple of times that um, there was a yeah, a knowledge crunching meeting and someone was starting up a huge enterprise scale UML modeling tool and uh, the business folks came in and the IT people said, hey, let's draw an activity diagram or a use case diagram and the business folks were like, what? Uh, never heard of that? What you never heard about that? And this doesn't work. And um uh, there are a couple of techniques now in the domain driven design community. They all revolve around um, knowledge crunching, and most of them uh, actually are workshop methods like event storming, domain storytelling, uh, example mapping, user story mapping, or impact mapping, or something like that. And they all are inclusive workshops, everyone can participate in them. And it's mostly about um, uh, not, not technical workshops. You, know, you work a lot with flip charts, with post-its, uh, sticky notes, and stuff like that. And yeah, they, they create a common ground for communication. Yes, there is no formal model coming out of them, but there is a lot of learning happening in them. And this learning and this yeah, exploration uh, then needs uh, feeds into a common and a shared language, uh, which is then the base for a domain model, which is represented in code and documentation and graphics and stuff like that. You mentioned uh, event storming. Uh, so yes. is, is that uh, if I understand? I, I'm not. I don't. I'm not sure I understand exactly what how that works, but um, and I should. Uh, but it sort of comes from brainstorming, right? And and the idea is that you're looking at a past a past event and kind of yeah, exactly. break, breaking down what happened and and what you can yeah. do to improve things going forward. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So let's say you want to create a product where you want to file a car claim for a car insurance uh, over a smartphone. Everyone in the room, when you want to explore that business domain, everyone in the room knows that the last thing that happens in this is that someone has filed the complaint successfully. And from there, you can move along. Hey, what do, what do we need for a successful complaint? Oh, someone must have uploaded a photo. Uh, they need to upload the police report. And uh, they need to provide uh, an insurance number of the counterparty. And, and things like that. And you, you explore that and you put those events on a modeling space, which is a huge roll of paper on a wall. And um, you start exploring things based on stuff that happened. And that's a totally simple concept. And it often ignites uh, a lot of discussion and also explorations. Oh, I, I never thought about that special case like this. And hey, that's a very interesting insight there. We never saw that. And yeah, it's a, a really efficient way of crunching down knowledge about business rules and domains and problems. You've got, you've got a really interesting uh, example of that that you talk about in, in this, this talk I referenced earlier that I, that I saw on YouTube, um, where if you, give, if you give the guys whose goal is, or the people whose goal is to convert people, mm -hmm. 
you know, sort of control of what a form looks, a sign up form looks like. Uh, it'll yeah. be really simple because they'll want to ask yeah. as few things as you can, low, low touch as possible to get people through. If you ask, particularly in the institutions that it sounds like you've done a lot of work with, like financial institutions, the risk guys, if they could make that form, that form would be 100 pages long. 10 pages. Yeah. <laughs> or 10 pages long. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and is, it in, is it in discussions like this where you bring those two groups together that people can finally kind of see, oh, yeah. now I understand why the requirements have been coming so, down to me this way? Or why there's sure. yeah yeah that's an option to do it. yes mm -hmm. and uh, it's uh, a lot about uh, power dynamics in organizations so who can have an influence on whom yeah who can demand that the application form is not just five fields which are totally optimized for conversion rates uh, but uh, that it's actually 40 uh, fields that are driven by regulatory requirements and risk demands uh, in order to drive the credit risk of the bank down. Yeah, that, that reminds me, actually. So I wanted to ask you about context maps, um, uh, yeah. because I think I think people sort of as people coming either coming from something towards something like this from an IT perspective or from a sort of stereotypical IT perspective mm -hmm. might not appreciate actually the complexity that a context map is meant to capture. Uh, you just yeah. reminded me of something. Um, I believe it was Gregor Hoppe who. Gregor Hoppe, yeah. Yeah, who, who wrote about the, the elevator, riding the yeah. elevator. Um, and I don't know if it was him, because uh, I interviewed him for this podcast, and there was someone else I interviewed who was also a, a, a chief software architect for a giant financial institution. But mm -hmm. they talked about like somebody's got to be able to be Jordi LaForge. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and have that role where they can like, they can understand what's going on in engineering, uh, but they've got mm -hmm. to have that, that, that be able to ride the elevator to go talk to Captain Picard and actually communicate to him what's important mm -hmm. and, you know, priorities and things like that. And mm -hmm. so I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about how, how you would in a practical sense, go about creating a context map that includes the politics like you're just bringing up, yeah. who's who's influential? I mean, do you literally, if you're undergoing the exercise of creating a context map in domain-driven design, do you actually like have an org chart and like draw connections between people and areas of influence and things like that? I, I, I usually don't address that from an org chart's perspective. Well, me personally, other folks might do that. Uh, I, I usually. Uh, I think uh, it, it depends on, on what your starting point is. One starting point, uh, and this is a very classical domain-driven design thing that's also part of the uh, existing literature, is that you map an existing system or an existing landscape, application landscape with this. Um, then I, I, I obviously look at the stakeholders that are around on the software. I look at the integration between teams and systems and then I pick uh, the, the folks whom I want to talk to um, I personally think that you can also use the context map in a greenfield approach when you want to create something new um, who can raise requirements on whom or whom do, you, do we want to just tell hey you just take what you get and that's that must be sufficient for your product and um, you can't raise any, any, any bigger requirements because we want to be able to move fast. And if we have an endless governance going around, uh, we will have a perfect governance, but we will be slow. And uh, 
that's a, a, a typical it depends kind of thing. Um, but I, I, I rarely I consult, I personally consult org charts, but they can be a valuable thing. Maybe I'm doing it wrong by not consulting them, I don't know. Um, but um, yeah, I think those power dynamics are, are something that are especially interesting if I uh, take Gregor's amazing analogy with the uh, elevator which I totally like. Uh, they are very interesting for the upper levels of the organization and uh, of the of the skyscraper that he's talking about. I think Gregor talked um, about um, if you're able to make the folks in the penthouse on the upper floors interested in some details from the engine room, from the machine room, then you're doing a good job as an architect. I think that's his. Uh, I think that's his quote, as far as I know. And what is domain storytelling? I found that concept mm -hmm. really fascinating. Yeah. Um, domain storytelling is also a knowledge crunching technique, um, which uh, revolves around sentences. Yeah? Subject, predicate, object. An applicant fills out a loan application form. So, uh, and you draw those sentences in a pictographic language. Um, in comparison to event storming, domain storytelling is forward oriented. It's not backward oriented with the events in the past tense. It's mostly forward oriented in the present tense. So someone draws, someone hands in something, someone files a report or something like that. And um, it's, uh, I, I think uh, it's also a very interesting thing because it's very, um, with the pictographic language, you visualize stories that are happening in a business domain. And this is a, a very helpful thing. Um, I very often actually combine event storming and domain storytelling together. I start off with event storming. And after that, the knowledge that has been gathered in the two or four or six hours of the workshop, I consolidate that with uh, domain storytelling so that everyone has a visualization of what we have just discussed. It's a very interesting thing coming very strongly from the German uh, domain room design uh, community um, from Henning and Carola and Stefan uh, from a company called WPS. Uh, and I think that's a very interesting concept. And I, I, I really like working with that a lot. One, one concept that uh, I confess kind of ultimately eluded me when I was mm -hmm. reading for this was the, um, the bounded context. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, you know, in the, in the style of your book from a sort of theoretical level and then with a kind of practical example of what, yeah. a, what a bounded context is. Yeah, I think um, if the bounded context wouldn't exist, <laughs> we, I, I wouldn't have my book right now and we wouldn't be talking. <laughs> I think uh, actually uh, domain room design is a really old thing. It's 15 years old now. Um, so it's a very, very old theory in the IT space, which is quite rare uh, because it's a very fast-paced environment. And um, the, the bounded context led to domain room design being very popular nowadays because one, um, one trend in IT nowadays are microservices, which are very uh, smaller independent systems, which are mostly mapped around on a like the the, the BSOS to PISA team, and uh, a team can 
design it, they can develop it, they can roll it out to production. And um, that's a very strong trend in IT architecture nowadays. And uh, a lot of the folks from the microservices community often refer to um, the bounded contact from domain during design with regards to the question, how do we cut those microservices? How do we design them? What's their granularity? What's their size? And a, a, gen, a, a rule, a rough rule of thumb is uh, one bounded context should be one microservice. And basically the bounded context is a decentralization of a, of a domain model. Now, back in the days, uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, we built very large, very big, very clunky systems. And they, they, they revolved around a very big central domain model that had its advantages. Yeah, it was very consistent. Um, it was, uh, it didn't, there was not a lot of repetition uh, reuse, don't repeat yourself. Those were the principles that drove those things. Um, those are the advantages, but the disadvantage is it makes you slow. Yeah, because you, when you change something in the big central thing, everyone else needs to change as well. So you have a lot of coordinated releases and by breaking down this big domain model into smaller pieces that are highly specialized for certain business capabilities, you decentralize your domain model basically. And this is what the bounded context is about. The bounded context is in one sentence, the boundary around the meaning of a model and the boundary around the ubiquitous language. So a ubiquitous language is mostly valid. It's a linguistic boundary. It's valid in one bounded context. And this is the key driver um, for there are many modern IT trends such as self-contained systems, microservices, and things like that. And that's the key driver for the popularity of domain-driven design nowadays. So, and also the organizational aspects, of course, that go hand in hand with it. So would this, would this just to think about like if I, if I were sort of like given the task, go, go define a bounded context, would, would mm -hmm. that, for example, be like let's say we were doing a – someone submitting a mortgage application. Mm -hmm. Would you define a bounded context around say – the credit score, getting the credit score, and mm -hmm. would, would that be one kind of bounded context and then another one be the risk assessment? Mm -hmm. um, what, what I think is uh, a, a one bounded context is obviously filling out the form yeah? because this is a, a business capability that revolves around many let's say e-commerce metrics yeah? such as conversion rates, um, where do to sales? That's basically a sales funnel, so to say. Yeah. When do when do they leave the checkout? Yeah. Uh, st stuff like that. It's it's extremely driven at the uh, consumer. It needs to be blazing fast. It needs to have the best UX, and it's basically that the key domain model in there is the loan application form. And another thing is then the scoring of the whole application. Yeah. You have a real estate assessment going in. Yeah, there may be a quote from a credit agency about the creditworthiness of the applicants, and there are a couple of rules in there uh, that derive points that uh, define some knockout criteria, such as, uh, let's say, uh, the monthly surplus of the household is negative, and no one would grant a credit for such a situation, obviously. Um, and... Uh, this is a totally different business capability. And I would encapsulate that 
into its own boundary context because it, it it lives by its own rules. It has a very sophisticated, very risk-driven and not e-commerce-driven model. And um, yeah. So okay, so I think I think I'm starting to understand a little bit better. So that this way, for example, if you if you sort of def if you're in in a team that's working on a product, maybe mm -hmm. even a huge one, and you define these bounded contexts, would you then sort of like have individual persons or little internal teams go off and work within a bounded context themselves? Yes. So they they understand how it all then once these bounded contexts have been defined, then people know what they're working on and they know how it fits in with the other things that other yeah. people are working yeah. on. It's, it's, I think, one, one boundary, the ideal setting. Yeah, I, I'm very well aware that the real world is not always ideal, but uh, the ideal setting would be you have one team which is responsible for one boundary context. So, because if one team would share two boundary contexts, um, the team always speaks the same language. So they would grow together from a mm. linguistic perspective. Oh, yeah. That's really interesting. yeah, if you have two teams sitting on one boundary context, this boundary context would drift apart in terms of the language. Yeah? And this, those are things you, sh you should keep in mind when you do those cuts. I think uh, you, you need to consult a couple of... Um, or you need to look at it from different perspectives, like organizational perspectives, quality criteria, domain models, processes, and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think I think I might have mentioned this in in a in a recent episode, but you know, one of the I I don't come from a programming background, mm -hmm. uh, and one of the interesting experiences I've had being part of LeanPub is um, seeing the way terms can become conflated. Uh, mm -hmm. And so there's one particular term that we have in LeanPub that, that has a very sort of specific meaning in our mm -hmm. code, but is a normal mm -hmm. English word that also refers to something that we present people with that they can mm -hmm. use on LeanPub. And those two things can actually become confused uh, and, and sort of, it sort of, in a sense, it kind of leaks out from the programming side mm -hmm. into the user side, the use of this term in a way that's very confusing to users mm -hmm. because it, it's, it doesn't mean to a user what it means to someone coding in the LeanPub code base mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and vice versa. And so when, and so, you know, if I'm sort of trying to communicate to, you know, the team, something that's coming mm -hmm. from users using mm -hmm. the same term, they always they often get derailed because they're like, oh, you don't understand. In the code, it means this. And it's like, yeah. no, no, I, I perfectly understand that in the code, it means that. But I'm telling you that the same word also has this other meaning. And, uh, yeah. and, and you know, the, the, I mean, obviously, I make my mistakes and, and sort of in interpretation as well, because there's this inherent problem with the conflation of terms. Uh, yeah. So what you said about how people, if the same team is working on two bounded contexts at the same time, the way those, their, their, their language will actually end up being confused. Absolutely. Like, potentially. Yeah. Because they're they're they are themselves conflating different ac yeah. activities uh, yeah. in, in their own work. Um, just before we move on to the next part of the interview, uh, you mentioned it's the you know there's there's no such thing as an ideal world, and that reminded me of this delightful phrase about programming that I think it might be the same friend you mentioned uh, earlier has, which is that a programmer should be like a werewolf, afraid of silver bullets. Yeah, that's a quote from Jochen Mader. Uh, who founded the music magazine with me? He 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 wrote that on Twitter, and I I really like that attitude because there are no silver bullets. It's all trade-offs, and never become a blind guru for for 
something it's it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. always find suitable solutions yeah, that that help you and your customers and uh, no, you're not getting paid for being yeah, for applying everything uh, blindly that's in for instance a domain driven design book or some other programming book you're paid to solve problems and uh, that should be your priority and I always use that term as a disclaimer in every single one of my conference talks that nothing I'm telling the folks is a silver bullet yeah I think it's it's such a great thing and I think I mean it works from, from all sorts of perspectives including from the sort of you know I guess one might say the sort of stereotypical kind of C-suite perspective where it's kind of like you yeah. know, I brought this up a little earlier and you, you 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 mentioned it too but why can't the why can't the computer guys just solve that problem and tie it off with a little bow and make it go away yeah. and it's because the world doesn't work like that um, no it just it just doesn't uh, moving on to the next part of the interview, I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. about your book. Uh, so, um, what and the process of being an author? So, what, mm-hmm. what, why did you choose to write on LeanPub? I guess is the first question I have about that. Um, yeah, well, uh, first of all, I'm sort of. Uh, uh, it, it goes back to the music background <laughs> to a certain degree. Uh, I, I, I basically grew up in a very do-it-yourself driven community as a kid. And this is something um, that I, I still value a lot. And uh, by publishing or by, by choosing self-publishing, I can work on my own rules. I can write the book the way that I want it. Um, I can adjust the schedule the, the way that I want it. Um, and so basically it, it helped me really good. So last year, uh, I wasn't so much into writing and I'm very honest, uh, I prefer doing conference talks over writing because I don't consider myself to be the best writer around. And, uh, so, uh, I, I always need to push myself to writing and the, the, the working mode, uh, with self-publishing, um, really helped me. So, um, at the end of the year, I, I actually had my stuff together and I, I wanted what I, I knew what I really wanted this book to be. And it went totally fast after that. Uh, and uh, so basically the self-publishing thing helped me a lot with my way of working. And on the other hand, uh, I also have to say uh, from um, I, I write a very specialized book. My book is not meant to be a, a bestseller, which is standing in any airport or any big bookstore or something like that. So uh, if I would go to a classic publishing company, it would be sold online anyways. Um, and uh, so I thought that this is basically a very modern and a very good way uh, to publish uh, nowadays. And um, yeah. And also from a royalties perspective, it is absolutely attractive, I must say. I'm not writing the book for the royalties, to be honest. Uh, it's more a thing that I thought I need to have a book out. And uh, it's, it's a topic I'm passionate about. But on the other hand, uh, when you as an author uh, get paid a, a fair deal and you can dynamically adjust the pricing the way you want it, you can release the way you want it, you don't have to discuss your marketing or anything with folks from a big company, um, 
that's the way of working that I just prefer. And you're you're publishing your book in stages, uh, which is yes. which is really interesting. And you you're sort of you've projected them out very explicitly, including including mm -hmm. the fact that you're going to be raising your prices over time. Yes. Did you did you come up with that model on your own? Did you borrow it from somewhere else? It was a lot of um, I think logical thinking. Um, I, I I put myself into a, a reader or a customer perspective uh, there with regards to that. Um, First of all, um, and also uh, Jürgen Aleppo, who's a, a well-known author around management stuff, once wrote a blog why he's not publishing on LeanPub or something like that, because he doesn't believe that people read incomplete books. And I thought Jürgen has a certain point here, and uh, I wouldn't want to read a chapter which is in itself um, incomplete, and I need to reread it again and again and again in order to get the updates. So um, from that kind of perspective, um, I thought, yeah, that's totally valid from a customer perspective or from a reader perspective. So I chose to, um, to publish complete chapters that are... Um, edited that are spell checked and we're only that are content complete and we're only some smaller refinements or something like that come in like a, a, a typo that i oversaw or uh, so, so some smaller adjustments only so i think uh, and my, my my approach to that is if you buy the book now and i have a traffic accident and i die tomorrow um you would still have something that is worth the price and that is consistent as a product. And um, when I do the next release, um, it contains more, but it's always a consistent product that I'm releasing. And the more the product grows, the more expensive it gets. And I value the readers that stepped in early, yeah, that put their trust in me at an early stage and so they get it cheaper. And the others that follow after that, they have to pay a little bit more. But I think with the variable pricing on LeanPub, you still have a very fair choice. Yeah, just to explain to people listening who might might have sort of not not quite uh, caught that, um, the uh, one of the features of buying a LeanPub book is that you get all the future updates for free, so that yes. um, you don't. If the when we when we talk about the price going up over time as chapters are added, that doesn't mean that you have to pay you have to no. pay more for the new chapters. Yeah, no, 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 no. It no. means so. What? Yeah, what Michael's saying is that you know, and this this is actually something that quite a few LeanPub authors have done is you know you reward someone for being an early adopter of your book by having the price be lower when you yeah. first publish it, and then they get all the future chapters for free. But when the book is complete, then if someone's buying it for the first time, the, the price might be higher for them than it would have been if they yeah. bought it earlier on in the process. Um, with respect to what you're talking about, about how, you know, publishing incomplete chapters, yeah, that's that's a very good point, And it's something that Lean Hub authors tend to not do. Uh, yeah. they, 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 they more, more or less adopt the same approach that you do, which is like, after mm -hmm. you've got, after you've got enough complete chapters, publish the first version of your book. And then when you publish new versions, I mean, aside from typo corrections and stuff like that, yeah. I mean, you can publish a hundred new versions of a lean book in, in a day with you want without, without bothering yeah. anybody, just sort of yeah. in, in the background doing the gardening or whatever. But, but yeah. when you, when you do a new release, a sort of formal release. That's when you've added like one or more new complete chapters. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and when when you're a reader, 
when you want to get on board is sort of more or less contingent on your uh, some combination of your taste and your needs. So, for example, yeah. if you if you really need to learn, if your boss has given you some task and you really need to learn something new, if a book is thirty percent complete, you're like, bring it on. <laughs> you know, yeah. I want it right now. Well, I don't want to wait for the, the you know this this yeah. auth- random author's random publishing schedule uh, to w- until it's a hundred percent complete. Like I want yeah. as much information as I can get right now. And so yeah. people like that are are happy to to jump on board early on yeah. in the process. Um, yeah. My second last question is um, is is interacting with readers important to you? Is that something that you've been doing a lot? You know, with people emailing you Absolutely. with typo thing, you know, suggestions and things like um. that. I didn't get a lot of feedback in terms of typos, um, but um, I actually uh, built up an audience uh, throughout the last one and a half years very proactively. So I think I had a, a very high number of um, readers who registered on LeanPub who said they would buy the book. Uh, and I, I started advertising for the book actually over a year ago and uh, so and, and I worked towards building up an audience and I'm very interactive with uh, the biggest part of my audience on Twitter actually I'm, uh, Twitter is probably my most important channel uh, for the interaction and um, some folks write me emails uh, others drop me a tweet um, and um, yeah, that's that's the way I, I, I work, and um, I'm always happy for feedback. Um, no book in this world is perfect. No author is perfect, and uh, we all have our very own perspective. And uh, I'm always curious in hearing other perspectives. Maybe I didn't see something, or yeah, learned something through my consulting so far, but some other person has, and that's something I'm always very interested in. My last question, and the one I usually use to close out the yeah. podcast, is um, if there was one thing we could build for you or one thing we could fix for you on LeanPub, what mm-hmm. would you ask us to do? Um, currently, um, I think um, since I'm currently on the on the very old contract, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I signed up before the subscription thing, the, the templates for printing, are kind of limited, but I think there is a solution for that. And other than that, I think um, the tracking where the sales are coming from. Yeah, that's something uh, I would be very interested in. And I posted a question on that on the forum a couple of days ago. Um, so when you run AdWords campaigns, when you buy a, a slot on the shelf, how do you measure that? Yeah, and I think um, you can't see that right now. And that would be uh, very interesting from a, a, a marketing perspective, how, where you spend your marketing money uh, for the books. Uh, in terms of the editing with the markdown stuff, I'm totally happy, but I'm not doing any crazy stuff there. Yeah? Uh, and that, for me personally, totally works out. But the, the, the tracking of purchases, where they are coming from, how you steer your marketing, that's something I would be very interested to see more sophisticated features. Okay, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for that yeah. for that suggestion. For instance, adding Google Tag Manager tags to a successful checkout. Yeah. Google. When you run an AdWords Sorry, campaign. Can you say for that? the tag man- for the tag manager of Google, um, when you run an AdWords campaign, mm-hmm. you could uh, inject a little snippet to the checkout page so yeah, that you see 
this purchase came from an ad right. yeah, or something like that. That purchase came from the shelf. I, I didn't buy a shelf spot yet because my book is not complete yet. And I may reserve that to a later stage, but uh, I would be very interested in seeing is that a successful measure for me or is it not? Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. Or is our, our Google ads a good investment or is the shelf better? I mean, yeah. everything is possible. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for that. We've had we've had a couple of other requests along those lines recently. Yeah. Uh, and for anyone listening, if you're if you're a Google Analytics expert, please go on the LeanPub Authors Forum and answer <laughs> answer Michael's question. Um, updating Google Analytics is something that we is is on our on our plan of things to do. Yeah. Um, and improving analytics generally and just sort of transparency because it, it's sort of like there's there's all kinds of like hard nosed reasons to do that if you're you know. Being a self-published author, you're running a business, you've got a product, um, yeah. but also there's something about around motivation that an, everyone knows analytics helps with as well, right? And just curiosity and engagement and, and knowing knowing where to put your attention or yeah. knowing about new avenues for attention is something that, you know, we want to we want to have, we, we, we do want LeanPub to be more of an environment uh, with, with things like that going on in it. Um, yeah. uh, that help you basically reach more readers and sell more books. Well, thank you very much, uh, Michael, for taking the time uh, to do this interview and for using LeanPub as the platform for your book. Uh, yeah. Best of luck. It's been a success so far, and I'm sure it will be going forward. Yeah, it exceeded all my expectations. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on iTunes if you haven't done so already and leave a review. It really does help. And if you'd like to become a LeanPub author yourself, either writing a book or creating a course, please go to LeanPub.com and click Why LeanPub. Thanks.